Welcome to Women on the Line, Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. Produced at 3CR Community Radio in Melbourne and broadcast on the Community Radio Network. I'm Nicole Kirby. On this week's show, we speak with author and campaigner Linda Tirado from Utah, America. Linda had a rapid rise to fame after going viral on the internet when she commented on her experiences of poverty and posted a YouTube video that showed her pulling cotton wool from her teeth to demonstrate how she gets by with rotten teeth and no access to dental care. Since then, she's released a book, Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstraps America, and she's become a vocal advocate on poverty. Linda talks about the working poor in America. She spent years working three jobs in the service industry, being paid a pittance and treated with disdain because of it. She talks about what's wrong with the American dream, the idea that anyone can rise to the top if only they try hard enough and that the poor are lazy. This story of meritocracy that America loves to export is rotten, and Linda tells us why. She speaks about what it's like for the working poor in America and why Australia is crazy for following in those footsteps. I spoke with Linda while she was in Australia for the Australian Council of Social Services conference. Thanks for joining me on Women on the Line, Linda Tirado. It's great to have you on the show. Super happy to be here. Great. And you're over from America, of course, and you've recently published a book, Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstrap America. Do you want to tell listeners who haven't read the book a little bit about the book and what it's, what's at the heart of the book? Uh, yeah, it's actually uh, really simple to boil down. It sucks to be poor. Um, and, and I'm not entirely sure why that's news or how I managed to be allowed to write an entire book about it, um, but, but I have, and it's been fantastic. The point that I frequently make is that if you have not lived in a certain situation, if you don't have certain experiences, you're not qualified to judge those that, that do. Um, and, and as we're on a, a women-focused program, in the way, um, has the word mansplaining made it over? It sure has. Yeah. So basically, you shouldn't rich explain to people, um, and, and any more than than mansplaining is a is a valid way of living. Um, and and it, it basically tells the story of I, I spent a decade and a half in the American service industry, working in bars and restaurants. Um, and, and it talks about what life is when you're holding down three jobs to support your family and people call you lazy. Um, because by definition, anybody with three jobs isn't lazy. Yeah, and your initial rise to fame came through an essay that you wrote online called oh, Why... No, 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 it was an internet comment. I was having a conversation with my friends, and I uh, am very wordy, and uh, people thought that I'd meant to write an essay, but no, it was, it was part of a broader discussion about not judging people um, and, and about the things that we don't know. Yeah, and I guess that's what we do see a little bit is... Um, people being judged for their decisions which seem like really bad decisions and you were writing about why I make terrible decisions. So um, eating fast food, smoking cigarettes, making poor financial decisions are all things that you've been judged for and you were trying to explain why that happens. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so people talked about um, the, the actual conversation that I was part of was somebody had been to the grocer and they had seen somebody on, on food stamps, which is very obvious in the United States. You get a special card that's very brightly colored, um, and they had an iPhone, which is considered a luxury item. 
And they said, you know, I know I'm not supposed to judge, but somebody explain why, because it, that's my money. Why should they have an iPhone, a nicer phone than me? And I said, do you know that their uncle didn't buy it for them for Christmas? Do you know they didn't get it free with a three-year contract? Do you know that they didn't come by it secondhand? How, how dare you judge somebody for having a nice thing out of context of their entire lives? You have no idea if that might be the only nice thing that they own. It's their one luxury. And how dare you tell another human being that they're not wearing their hair shirt properly, right? That they can't have a thing that is pretty, that they can't have any beauty, that they can't have any pleasure. How dare you make that judgment simply because you think you're buying their food? Because if you sit down and really think about it, in America we have um, what we call tax deductions. I don't know how you guys do that here. Yeah, we also um, have tax deductions, yeah. Yeah, so I, I don't see the moral distinction between being on food stamps and taking a tax deduction for a business lunch. Either way, the public purse is feeding you. The difference is that a business lunch might be three martinis and a steak, and I promise you that that isn't the case on food stamps. So really, who should be feeling guilty about taking money from the public purse in the long term? How do you make that distinction? And more to the point, when you deal in America, our wage gap is 78 cents a woman makes on the dollar to a man. If you're a woman of color, that gets even worse. Depending on your color, it might be as low as 45 cents on the dollar to what a white man makes. How can you, in a society where that is true, sit in judgment of women who aren't doing very well financially and say, well, you're not doing very well at all. Well, of course I'm not. I'm only getting paid less than half of what everybody else is. That's absolutely right. And when we're talking about issues around judgment and rich splaining, as you call it, um, what's actually come out as you've circulated on the internet is, I mean, you've also been personally criticised and um, detractors from you have said that you're a hoax or that you don't have the right to speak authentically about the experience of being impoverished. Now, I kind of don't really want to get into those personal accusations because I don't really know that they're worth exploring. But what what I do think that they bring out, though, is a sense around which... Is there a sense around which we discriminate against what is poor and what's not poor or what's worthy to be poor, who's worthy of getting um, government assistance and who's not? Is there a bit of a... Are we a little bit unclear about the distinctions between levels of poverty, if you like? Like, if you're not homeless, you can still be poor, for instance. Actually, I really enjoy talking about that critique because what it shows us is that there's so much education that needs to be done. The critique was your parents are middle class, therefore you can't have been poor. And not only, the critique started, and this was the first comment that came back that was negative on that piece, was how can you be poor if you know such big words? That is an actual comment that I got. That is what sparked the criticism. But more to the point, in America, people don't often live in absolute poverty as a static condition over their entire lives. The working classes, on average, will come in and out of poverty five or six times. And it's down to, are you having a good year? Did you get a good job, or did you have an accident that cost you that job, and so this year you're unemployed? Did you have a medical condition that you didn't have insurance for, and now you're absolutely abject for two years while you try to get that paid off and recovered from? 
So those are the sorts of things that make us poor. And, and in, in the working classes, you do kind of go back and forth. So for somebody to say, you're not the right sort of poor because you haven't been poor uniformly your entire life is to fundamentally misunderstand the nature of poverty in the system that we've created over the last 30 years. So I love that criticism, and I love to talk about it, because that gives us a chance to really talk about what poverty is. Women on the line. When you have ministers saying things like, well, if you want a better life, just get a better job, without also adding, and here is the program that we're putting in place to make sure those jobs exist, you've got problems. When you have that kind of misconception, and you have people that are that detached from their constituency and that detached from reality, that gives them that kind of moral line where they can step back and say, I can harshly judge these people because I'm doing okay and I live in this country and therefore everybody can do as well. And that ignores racism and that ignores sexism and that ignores systemic injustice and that ignores whatever problems that you have. And Australia, um, like, like England, which is the other country that I've, I've been to uh, with the book and, and spent a lot of time in now, um, there is an inherent difference between a country that says we collectively take care of our citizens. You should be able to go to the doctor if you have cancer without it bankrupting your entire family unto the second generation, right? That is a very fundamental difference in the way that you feel about your countrymen and the way that you feel about what your country is than my country has. And so the, the danger that I see in Australia and in England both, where they're looking at privatizing the NHS, they're looking at kind of starting to chip away at that safety net, I worry that the citizens of these nations haven't really thought about the fact that in America we have high risk and high reward where you can really be anything. A black man can be president in a racist country where 85% of our prison population is made up of young black men. And we know that we have, you know, kind of that, that racist policing and people have been watching those sorts of things happen. We've got riots. We've got, you know, people being shot dead on the street, mm. we extrajudicial killings. That's the same country we have a black man as president. You can do anything in America. We have the best hospitals. We have the best schools. We have the best of everything. But at that cost is that everybody isn't just kind of okay. There isn't that bottom, right, below which we will not allow our citizens to live. We are a high-risk, high-reward society. When I was on um, Q&A on Monday, um, they were talking about uranium mining. And, and the, the term that I kept hearing was exploit those resources and get, get, you know, you can sell that. You can make money off of that. And I thought to myself, if you are going to start chasing money as a government, as a nation, you really need to grapple with the fact that you are moving towards that high-risk, high-reward system. And that is a giant change in culture. That's a giant change in, in ethics. That's a giant change in the things that you hold dear as Australians. Yeah, and I think you're right there. Like, I think it's really easy to say that, oh, we all think that poverty is a bad thing and that all people are entitled to more than that, more than the bare minimum. Um, but when we're actually talking about systemic causes of poverty and what we can effectively do to reduce the disparity of wealth, what are we talking about? We're talking about things like early childhood education. We're talking about things like public health. We're talking about things like public universities. 
Um, so I know that you guys aren't quite on the um, – in England, they only started charging for universities in 2007, and it was a huge deal. And in Australia, you have the system where the government automatically basically gives you a loan that you can start to repay after you're out. In America, we have a system where they say, if you can come up with the money, then you can go to university, right? And so the, the, the difference there is that you feel entitled to that support to get an education here. That, that that is the way to make a prosperous nation, to have everybody be able to go to school, to everybody to get that shot. And if they go and they fail out or they don't do well or whatever, then they have to face the consequences of that decision. But the, the, the basic assumption that everybody should get the shot is how you deal with poverty. It's giving everybody a shot instead of saying, hey, if you can't make your own shot, then, you know, get bent. You're just not good enough. Mm. So, you know, and, and again, there are provable, measurable ways to combat this. The IMF, and this came out in the ACOS report, is you've got, like, the IMF and all of these, like, the World Bank and all of these incredibly not terribly liberal <laughs> institutions saying that one of the best things you guys have going for you is that you don't have this giant stratification. That's why, out of the entire Western world, you guys managed to hold your unemployment rate to 1%, which is unheard of. Like, that's, that's actually full employment. That's the thing we debate in other Western countries, of is it even possible to get to that kind of unemployment rate? And you guys have managed it. It's amazing. It's incredible which doesn't mean that there aren't people being left behind. And one of the dangers of living in a prosperous society is that you think that that prosperity must be equally shared, right? It's very easy to say, well, we have a fairly high minimum wage, and so everybody's doing okay. But, you know, I talked to a caddie on my way to an airport. I flew to Canberra um, and, and went to Parliament yesterday. And the guy that took me to the airport has three jobs. I stopped in a coffee shop. I, st I'm, um, I have an Airbnb in Glebe, and I was talking to this girl that talks that works at the coffee shop. She's a bartender at night. She's got two jobs, and with a minimum wage this high, why are there people with two jobs trying to make ends meet? It's because you're moving towards that American system. It's interesting that you mention minimum wages in this context because that's something that has been brought under attack under the current government in Australia. There's a productivity commission that are looking into minimum wages and um, awards around holidays and public holidays and this sort of thing. So this is something that is actually under threat at the moment, the minimum wage. And yeah, at the moment, Australia has a comparatively high minimum wage, but particularly in areas that where employment is tenuous, in hospitality and the kind of areas that you've just been talking about, that minimum wage is particularly... Um, is particularly vulnerable, I think. In Australia, we've seen the unions come out against this. What do you think is the role of unions um, in organising against this kind of systemic poverty and disadvantage? Well, and again, here's a place where you guys haven't managed to go as far as we did. We started union busting in the 80s. American unions now represent 9% of American workers, and 34 of our states are what they call at-will which means that you have no collective bargaining, you have no contract with your job. They can say to you one day, we love blue shirts, you have to wear a blue shirt every day. You have to go out and buy a blue shirt. You show up the next day, they say, we changed our mind, we hate blue shirts. Anybody with a blue shirt is fired, you have lost your job. You have no recourse. Mm. And 
So, you know, for us, the unions have, have increasingly become toothless because we've regulated them out of existence because we've been making the business lobby happy. And here you have unions that are actually, you know, doing a fair shake at trying to protect people, and you have a strong union ethic. I hear about the unions a lot here, which isn't true in America. Mm, in America, I think that there has been a campaign around a $15 minimum wage. Have you been involved in that? Absolutely. Can Absolutely. you tell us a bit about it? It's called Fight for 15, um, and it's actually the, the ask is Fight for 15 and a union. And that's the part, you know, it's not a good hashtag, so the and a union gets dropped off a lot, but that's an equal demand. And the reason that we're doing that is we are asserting our value as laborers. We are saying we are the glue that holds American society together. Without a service class, you don't have a country that functions. And we need to be remunerated as such. We need to have our labor valued. You want, if you want us to help move this country forward, then you will pay us enough so that we can have civic engagement, so that we can think about philosophy and morality, so that it's not you get up at 6 a.m., you go to your first shift, you get an hour to get to your second job, you work your second shift, you're home by 11 p.m., you wake up, you do it all again the next day. Because that was my life for a decade and a half. I existed to work so that I could pay my rent, so that I would have a place to take a shower, so that I wouldn't be disgusting when I went to work. Mm. And what kind of a life is that? What kind of a humanity is that? Is that even a life that you want to have? Is there any point to that life other than the human will to survive, right? So the Fight for 15 movement is about dignity. It's about respect. It's about understanding that labor has value, even if some people think that a monkey could do my job. There's a reason monkeys don't do my job, right? You need me in that position. If CEOs, if corporate executives, if advertising types, if the well-renumerated in our society suddenly had to clean their own bathrooms at their offices, had to take their own trash, had to do their own cleaning, had to do their own dry cleaning, had to cook all of their own food and clean up after it, would they have the time to go off and be fancy people with their big ideas and their giant corporations? Can you be a CEO if you're spending all of your time taking care of yourself? Or do you need people to help you? Mm. And if you need people to help you, how dare you look at them and tell them they have no value? Because by that very need, you have said that they are valuable. And so the Fight for 15 movement is just workers saying, look, we work as hard as anybody else, and in fact, in most cases, harder, right? We deserve a piece of this country, of this grand prosperity, of this amazing wealth that our country has. You will not make that wealth grow on our backs. We deserve better. We are as human as everybody else. We are not uniquely stupid. We are not uniquely lazy. We are not uniquely unintelligent or immoral. There is no moral distinction between the vices of the rich and the vices of the poor. And so for people who have enough money to afford whatever vices they like, to look at the underclasses and the service classes and say, well, you guys should never have a moment of enjoyment. You should never have a moment of relaxation because you haven't earned it. I say back, that is a human right to have some pleasure, to have some dignity. Those are the human rights that we are fighting for in the Fight for 15 movement. And I'll tell you what, we are winning. 
We have seen wages raise. We have done it in Seattle. We have done it in Los Angeles. We are doing it in New York. We are doing it in Rhode Island. There are 72 cities, municipalities, or states that have raised their wage since Burger King and McDonald's and Wendy's and Walmart workers, who, by the way, are some of the bravest people I have ever seen because they are risking blackballing. They are risking their entire lives because, remember, these people subsist on their paychecks. They are walking out and saying, we and the 45 million Americans that live in poverty deserve better, and we will put our livelihoods on the line to say so. The bravest Americans that I know are service workers who are walking out saying, we can do better as a nation, and what's more, we have to. And so you've actually had success there in seeing the minimum wage raised by some of those major corporations. Yes, and what's really weird, what's really weird is it's turning out to help local economies because as it turns out to sell things, you need customers. And to have customers, you need people with money in their pockets that they can afford to spend. Henry Ford figured this out at Mm. the beginning of the 20th century. He paid his workers enough that they could afford to buy his cars, and that built a company that still lasts today, that is a major American corporation still today, it drove innovation because his workers could afford his product. And so everywhere that they're raising the minimum wage, the data shows us that, you know, there's some road bumps, that there's some adjustments, and then people have more money to spend, which only helps the local economy. On Community Radio Around Australia, you're listening to Women on the Line, produced in the studios of 3CR Melbourne. I'm Nicole Kirby, and you're hearing from Linda Tirado, anti-poverty campaigner and author of Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstraps, America. And we've been talking about service industries, and they are often industries that are populated by women. Are there gendered causes for poverty, and are there particular ways in which women experience poverty? Yeah. Well, to begin with, um, there's the obvious of the wage gap of we earn 74 cents to the dollar of what a man makes in all cases. And then there's the child care gap, which is that women largely are responsible for child care. But child care, if you're going to pay somebody to watch your children, it's going to cost you nearly as much as you make. I know women who go to work, they make $54 in an eight-hour day. They pay 50 of it to child care. They're working for eight hours a day for $4 because they can't not have jobs or they would feel like they were moochers. These are women working for $4 a day, effectively. It's, it's insane. And then you have in the hospitality industry especially, sexual harassment is rampant. The studies show us that in the hospitality industry, in restaurants and bars, women are sexually harassed at, at an amazing rate. And I can tell you this personally, I've had bosses tell me you should feel flattered because if they didn't want to grab your ass, then that would mean that they didn't like you. And if they like you, they'll tip you. Mm-hmm. And in more than that, it's your job to please the customer. I've had managers tell me that too. I would go to them and say, look, this guy's getting out of line. Can you go have a chat with him? Can you stop this? Can I not be sexually harassed in my workplace? They'd say, it's your job to please the customer. I have had managers who told me that if I gave them sexual favors, they would give me the good shifts where the money was. And that's the thing you've just got to tolerate. And you have to make the decision, do I want to feed my children or do I want to stand up to this? And that's the reality of being a woman in the service industry. Mm. And standing up to those things alone, of course, is very difficult. But I suppose United, that's how um, these things are beaten. But... I wanted to mention, I mean, when we're talking about the 
um, $15 minimum wage. That's partly a social media campaign. And you've really kind of um, taken, I guess you went viral on the internet, basically. Um, yeah. <laughs> and so social media if has... you want to lose a ton of weight, go viral, <laughs> man. You will not leave your chair for two weeks. You will just sit there, drink coffee, sleep for an hour, sitting up, get back up. So a lot of the activism that you've been doing is based around social media and the internet. But I wanted to ask you if you think that there are limits to that kind of activism, clicktivism, as it's been called, or is it something that we need to utilise more effectively as well, activists? Look, one of the problems that we've got in, in, in the entire world economy, right, is that technology is, is killing jobs, that we are going through the equivalent of the Industrial Revolution. We have just rediscovered coal or steam or electricity or whatever you want to call it. That's what the Internet has done. And I understand the critique of saying, well, you liked it on Facebook and called it a day, right? Like, that's Mm. not helping anything. But the corollary to that is the Black Lives Matter movement. So um, in in America, um, black people are being shot by police extrajudicially. And in in many cases, these are people that the police suspected of crimes. And, And what we found is about half of the time, that might have been true. But it started in Ferguson, Missouri last August when Mike Brown, who was 18, was shot by Darren Wilson for the crime of stealing two cigarettes. He was executed on a public street for stealing two cigarettes. And I think we can all agree that stealing cigarettes is wrong. I think we can also agree that it doesn't deserve a death sentence, particularly before one has had a chance to see a judge or a jury and have sentence passed, right? Mm -hmm. And so you saw all of these folks suddenly take to the Internet and they spread the information. They said, look, this is happening. Do you know this is happening? And then the next thing you know, somebody else got shot in a different city and people went, oh, my God, do you know this is happening? John Crawford was shot in Ohio. And we have um, what we call open carry laws, which means you're allowed to have a gun in public, right? And so this guy was in Walmart playing with a toy gun. Police came and shot him for what would have been an entirely legal thing had it even been legitimately real. Tamir Rice, a 12-year-old, was shot by police in less than two seconds after they pulled up on him because they said he was threatening, because they thought he had a toy gun. And they shot him without even giving him any warning. And without the Internet, without social media, without the hashtags, all of these would be isolated incidents. They would be moments of grief for a city. There would be that many mothers grieving their sons and daughters. But it wouldn't be a coherent movement. We wouldn't know that every three days in America a black man is shot by police if we didn't have the Internet. And you know what we're doing? We are changing the world with that. Today, we had Walmart, we had Amazon, both say we will no longer sell the Confederate flag, which in, in, in America is, is a fairly you know, heated debate, mm. but it's a symbol of racism to black Americans. I don't know many black people that like looking at the Confederate flag because that was a war of slavery, right? Mm. We are changing our entire nation. We are changing our discourse simply because we are all talking to each other about what's going on. I live in an incredibly vast country. It takes six days to drive from one side of my country to the other. We frequently will not meet people from across the country. And because of clicktivism, we are doing things like having a discussion 
about racism in America, which is a discussion that is long overdue. And more to the point, we are having people prosecuted for these extrajudicial killings. For the first time, police are starting to go to jail if they act poorly so that we can maybe start to trust our police forces again. That is a huge deal. And are there and limitations, though, to relying? Are there limitations to relying on clicktivism? Yeah, well, of course. I mean, if you just hit like on Facebook and that's it, you're doing it wrong, right? Clicktivism and internet activism more broadly is a way to say, hey, we're having a march at this time in this location. Tell everybody you know. That's the way that we can coordinate, that we can plan, that we can talk tactics, that we can talk facts, right? And then we can take that and we can translate that into real-world action. And you have to have that second component. You mm. have to. It's one thing for 12,000 people to know a fact. It's another thing for 12,000 people to know a fact and then 6,000 people to take to the streets. That's a message. Mm, absolutely. I think we're going to have to leave it there, but it's been so good talking to you. Thanks very much for joining us on the show, Linda. Absolutely. Have a great day. You've been listening to Linda Tirado, anti-poverty campaigner and author of Hand to Mouth, Living in Bootstraps America. Linda mentioned the campaign for a $15 minimum wage in America. If you want to find out more about that, have a look at the hashtag FightFor15. That's all for Women on the Line today. Women on the Line is Community Radio's National Women's Current Affairs Program. It's produced and presented by a range of women broadcasters from 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network. We greatly appreciate financial support from the Community Broadcasting Foundation. We welcome your comments or thoughts on today's show, so please send us an email to womenonthelineline at hotmail.com or phone 3CR on 03 9419 You can also have a look at our Facebook page, Women on the Line. And Women on the Line programs can be downloaded from the 3CR website, www.3cr.org.au slash womenontheline. The theme music for Women on the Line is Slideshow at Free University by La Tigra. I'm Nicole Kirby. I hope you can tune in again next time. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.